Counselor Accents Podcast. Two school counselors who love their jobs. Oh, and they happen to have Southern accents too. Bless their hearts. I'm Laura Rankhorn. I'm Kevin Crumbly, and together we are Counselor Accents. You just started first. Okay. Well, I know. Well, I had to take the bull by the horns because you weren't doing it. So I'm hungry. If you must know. And if I'm hungry, I can't think. But then you after know, I eat too much. If anybody <laughs> understands that, it's me. And it's you know you. that. I do that. I do know that. I do know that. With me whenever I have crashed. And I'm not the same person. I am the person that they made that commercial about the Snickers bar. You know, somebody needs a Snickers. You are. I am that person. It's like, who are you? If I can have my thyroid, person, if my thyroid's off, I'm a different. Oh, do not mention thyroid to me. <laughs> the it's a real thyroid thing. months that we went through. I just, I'm in therapy over you. You're dealing with your thyroid. But, you know, now that we've made it through that, we can make it through anything. That's true. Because that was rough. That was a rough It was so rough. I just remember at times looking over at at you and thinking, who are you? But the good thing about it is you were so aware of it. You knew, even when you were thyroiding it, that it was your thyroid. And I think that says so much for you. Well, you know, self-awareness is a spiritual gift of mine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I hope you weren't just being mean and ugly, claiming it was your thyroid. <laughs> That's an idea. Oh, it's my thyroid. It's my thyroid. So you've been talking about this story that you read. Tell me all about. Oh, it. I just no, I just read this this morning, and it just kind of cracked me up a little bit. It was a Reader's Digest, and it was this school counselor. I think it may be this month's Reader's Digest. Who reads Reader's Digest? I, was I read Reader's Digest. I was going I to have I am a third generation Reader's Digest. I love Reader's Digest. It made me Reader's Digest uh made me have the highest score in speech class in college because I would tell retail a Reader's Digest like a story from and it would just like it was your like, own. Like it was my yeah. own and I and they were like, That happened to you, were attacked by a cougar? Yes. <laughs> Yes, I was. I have enough stories on my own without, I mean, I could write and it'd be true stories. You know this. I don't have to make up stories. My life is crazy. But this was funny. You know, they have those laughter. You may not know because I don't know if you've ever read a reader's digest in your life. Surely, you know, they have like laughter is the best medicine or something part in the magazine. Do you know this? This is so sad. I'm embarrassed. And I'm afraid that people are going to be embarrassed for you. I bet if we polled our audience, I bet if we polled our audience, you would be in the minority. Oh my goodness. Readers. Okay. Well, I grew up on Reader's Digest. I'm sorry. All my children in Reader's Digest, three generations. (laughs) If all my children are still on. Oh, I thought, okay. Um, I don't even know. I don't know either. Those were the, those were, you know. But here it was about the school counselor. It was a true story. So they had written it in and she was a school counselor and, and she uh, couldn't wait. This is, she was new at her job and she looked down the playground and this little, this little girl was out there by herself. And so she's like running out, running out there to her. And, and she was like, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. And she said, okay, I'm just checking on you. And she kind of walks off and 
The little girl just still stands there and she goes over and she says, can I, the counselor goes, can I be your friend? And she said, she looks at her kind of funny. And she said, yeah. She said, but right now I'm the goalie. <laughs> <laughs> so I need you to back off. And I feel like that's what, and I have done stuff like that. Like I will create a problem when there's not one. <laughs> I don't know. That just hit me as. Such, we all, as school counselors, I felt like we could relate. To this that weekend. is our heart, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, could like, you just please? I'm fine. But forbid we've all done a child that. standing alone. We will, whether they're goalie, whether, no matter what, if they're standing I ha- alone. Well, I had this happen. I'm going to tell this story because I felt, I have had this happen. I was teaching a group of kids it was Sunday school class and I was teaching a group of kids and we had a brand new pastor and this is the absolute straight up truth I don't know if I've told you this story before but they came somebody came and knocked on the door and said they need the pastor needs you up in his office and I thought "Mm, he's heard about me you know okay okay he's heard about me somebody needs some help okay so anyway I go in and sure enough he is counseling a lady. And I thought, yeah, yeah. He, he Move won't. over, buddy. Let me Move over. I hear what you're saying. So I, you know, put on my humility face and my my, my counseling face. And, and I come me. in. I come in and I, I grab hands with them. If you will. Uh-huh. I'm gra- oh, yeah. I grab hands and I'm like, what's going on? What's going <laughs> on? How can I help you? And I thought, this is good for the new pastor to see me. So anyway, I mean, it, she goes into this, she starts in, you know, about the husband has, you know, something with something he's doing. It's horrible. And, and I'm like beginning to counsel. And finally, the pastor says, do you want me to tell whoever's on the phone to call back later? Because you have a phone call. And that was why they had called me. Oh, <laughs> that is so Talk about. So I felt like that counselor who said, uh, okay, I'm. Sure, you can be my friend, but later I'm being a co-goer. They had not called me, Laura. Did you get that part? I got it. Do you uh, understand? I had joined. I had got. I had gotten my counseling face on, and that was not what I was needed for. That it is- was. It was pride. Mm-hmm. Pride, Laura. Pride. I feel like I've had to watch this in real life so so, so often for you. you. For you, and. <sighs> Your church stories. Crack it's a personality trait. I know. It's a personality trait trait to think that everybody. I, is it? It's pride. I'm sorry. But it's you know, pride. we're a good balance because I'm the opposite and think, oh, they're not. They're not calling me. That's not me. Oh, and, yeah. Showcase your humility, please. And I just want to let you know that you could, you would benefit from a dose of what I have. <laughs> and you would benefit from a dose of what I have. <laughs> <laughs> and I think both have their pros and cons. I agree. Both have their pros and cons. You're but good anyway, for me. Let me just say that. You're good for let me. Let me just say to you right now, I have a t-shirt made that says you're good for me. You are good for me. <laughs> I have one up to you on that. So, Laura, you know that my principal has moved on and now he is a superstar in the educational world. And I am still in grief phase over this. 
And yesterday I talked to his wife and he knows, she knows, she said, you're his work wife. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, I am. And I'm just going to publicly let you know right now that I am broken hearted. And I feel like the woman that's been left for a much better something, you know, like I've worked with him through all and now I've moved on to a bigger house, to a bigger, more money. You got him, you got him through medical school. and Thank you. And now he's moved into a mansion. He's driving a Corvette. Yeah. And you're still you. his medical school bills. Yeah. Thank you. Exactly. That's, I am proud for him, though. He is the best principal in the world. I just envisioned when you said you talked to his wife and she said, you're his work wife. And I know this is difficult. I just envisioned the two of you, Reba and whoever singing. Does he love you? Does he love you like he loves me? (laughs) I I am proud for him and excited for whoever gets me next. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like American Idol, except it's like Parkside Principal, like the auditions and who's making it to the next round. And I know. No, it's I know. I've heard there has been lots who have. I may be making this number up, but I've heard like 20 people have. Can I say audition for this part? They <laughs> audition. They audition, so it'll be interesting to see. But anyway, life, life is full of change. And I know our school, we've, we've got enough school counselor friends out there that we've talked to and, and been Facebook groups and stuff with to know change is hard, but it just, in life and in education, it happens. But when you spend, as you know, Laura, with your change that you made, we're always making changes in education. It, and goodness gracious, I think you cried all summer long over your change, but we all go through these changes. It's difficult. And I could cry even now. It's it, but it's so it's good. It's such a good thing. And I yeah. love where I am. But just the whole the the change of it. And you know, you you build these relationships and you share these times with people. And to leave those memories, or you know, you have those memories, but to leave yeah. those things and know and, that yeah. it's never going to be the same again. Yes, that's, it's the time of mourning. And gosh, it I'm is. Gonna, I'll never forget sitting with you <laughs> and we were in the middle of a conversation about something not even related to school. And you asked me a question and I started the conversation in my normal voice. And then I said, I don't know, I guess you need to ask her. And it wasn't even related to my school situation. I just started thinking about it as we were talking and yes. couldn't even hold it in. And you looked at me <laughs> With zero compassion. I had it. I had had it. And yeah, you were like, are you crying again? And (laughs) no, I pushed, I pushed my mom to that point a couple of times too, as I was growing up and, you know, everybody has compassion to a degree. And then you wear out your welcome with the tears and you were half a split second from me slapping you, you know, (laughs) like where you slap people because you think they're like in shock. <laughs> yeah. I thought I'm going to get to, this is gonna be fun. I'm gonna get to slap her and I'll have the excuse of you were going in shock. I had to. I'm Kim Crumbly. I'm Laura Rankhorn. And together we are counselor accents. I'm and in love already, Laura. I'm embarrassed, honestly, because if you're viewing this, 
please look at his setup and look at like how sad we are compared to our guests today. It's on though. I mean, I've been inspired to up my game. When you hear him, you're going to see he sounds delicious. He sounds impeccable. It's impeccable. Um, so I feel like maybe this was an intervention to get you to realize that you need to actually plug in one of your microphones. Oh, <laughs> we're going to go there today. Okay. So Jacob, Chastain, you, uh, we just want to thank you for being with us today. Yes. Um, we were telling you earlier that we have episodes that, uh, we call everyone has a story. You have a story that you're going to share with us today, but I found you because um, I have like three categories of podcasts that I listen to. One is educational, and you're my favorite educational podcast, and I get so much from your guests. You have a variety of guests, and uh, you're just so good at interviewing them and just highlighting what they have to share. You're you're really gifted at what you do, so you're my favorite educational podcast. And I also discovered that you've written a book, which I have ordered, but it has not been delivered to me yet, but um, I can't wait to dive into it. So um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I love switching the roles, so to speak, uh, and coming and talking in a different capacity to educators and whoever else is paying attention to the shows that I jump on. But Um, And thank you for the kind words about Teach Me Teacher. You know, when that podcast started, there was no conceivable idea outside of my ego that anyone would actually pay attention, right? You know, I always think someone's going to care. That's how I do things anyway. I'm like, yes, it's going to be the greatest thing ever. But I mean, if you would have told me however many years ago that people like they would have, I mean, it got me two book deals. It's, you know, we're sponsored. It's, we're over 200 episodes and, you know, just people all around the world listen to it every single month. I mean, it's just inconceivable. And then what's funny though, is you see the numbers and that stuff's cool. But when I actually hear people tell me, you know, they've been listening and they tell me stories that I forgot I told on the podcast, you know, however many years ago, that always blows my mind. But other than that, I am a podcast host. I, I host Teach Me Teacher, which is my main podcast. And then I have a second podcast called Craft and Draft, which um, I co-host with my partner, Pam Ochoa, who we have a, a really strange story of how we started working together. And she's been, te- I, this is my eighth year in education. She's in her 34th year in education. So it's it's almost like a generational conversation at times, which is super fun. But other than that, I have a book called Teach Me Teacher, which is about my life and um, how teachers were the difference makers for me and education was the difference maker. I have a second book called Rightfully Empowered, all about empowering young voices coming out uh, very soon. Hopefully I'm getting those final edits because I'm so excited to release that book because I it features over... 30 pieces from my students that they wrote over the last two years during uh, the pandemic. And their pieces are heartbreaking and inspiring and they're just absolutely phenomenal human beings. So I'm excited about that. But other than that, I am a seventh grade English uh, department chair and teacher down here in the state of Texas doing it. uh, How I try to keep all the positive energy and everything else going while handling all the pandemic madness that uh, creeps on and off as we go through. So that's that's kind of a little bit about me. Don't you love him already? (laughs) I do. And I'm just thinking hero, you know, I don't know. There's just something about teachers right now that I just, well, we're all an educator 
we're all educators, but when I think about teachers and what they're doing and what they have done and, you know, nobody may ever know the extent of what, what teachers have gone through over the last two years, but, but, you know, that's one of those jobs that it's okay. You know, we're doing what we've got to do. And to think that you're doing this podcast and reaching so many lives and teaching that is always Laura and I always say you're still doing if you're still doing in the trenches and you have this other stuff too that you're educating other people that's 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 very amazing and and inspiring well and there's to to speak to that real quick is I think that uh you know, when you step outside of the classroom, right, when you and that could be go to admin, um, there's people that, you know, they build up platforms, and they end up speaking kind of full time or consulting. And I'm friends with a lot of those people. And I think a lot of them have a lot of value. But I think the moment you step out, the moment you're in tune, the, the however much you're in tune with what students need today and what teaching is like, it just it just diminishes just a little bit. And I've, I've always said that I don't know what's going to happen to teach me teacher when I inevitably step into the administration role, which is something I want to do because I want to build a campus. Um, I, I want to build one from the ground up, whether, I don't know whether it'll be called one day, but that's kind of like my, my big vision goal. And, um, I just got my administration cert, uh, not too long ago. I'm fully certified. So now it's just a matter of when I want to walk through the door and that the conversation of how valid does something like teach me teacher from my point of view stay in that instance? That's something that uh, I'm kind of terrified to approach because there is a difference. I listen when teachers come to me, when I'm at a professional development and I know that teacher is still in the classroom, I listen to them uh, in a different way than from people who might not be out. That doesn't mean that they don't have good stuff to offer. It doesn't mean that their expertise is invalid. It just changes how I take in that. So I know other teachers do that as well. So that's something that um, it, it weighs on me a little bit, but I think it's, you know, you kind of have to go where your, wherever your passions are. And I think I'm, I'm so addicted to teaching right now and I still love the process and the quote unquote grind of it all that I, I can't imagine not being in the classroom currently, but I, everyone says I'll know when I know. And so I'm waiting for that moment to happen. It's not there yet, but um, I'm, I'm curious to see, uh, when, when that happens. Well said, yeah. well said. I, I, I've heard that so many times. You'll know when you know it's time and that you go where the passion is. And if you're still loving that grind, which we love being school counselors. And that's why we, right. you know, we too deal with a lot of folks who are, and they're great and wonderful, but we haven't felt that need to move on to something else. So I, I'm, I know your seventh graders are grateful. <laughs> And I love, you're our kind of person because Kim and I both say that we're builders. And so the fact that you want to build a campus from the ground up and and just put your mark on it, that is so exciting. So we can't wait to follow He's you. He's already up. texted me about needing a school counselor. Oh, I didn't receive that text. So I wish I hadn't, I no. wish I hadn't said anything. We talked before the show started, really. And so that's good. I'm glad you decided to take my advice and bring Kim on too. So that's <laughs> <laughs> you know, to be fair, though, I mean, the one thing that I do want to do uh, at the new school is, you know, staff it with the with the professionals that actually need to be in there. You know, one of the you know, I teach at a school where trauma is the norm and mm -hmm. uh, 
kids go home to all kinds of different backgrounds and some of those are safe and many of them aren't. And I got to tell you, our, we have two counselors who are absolutely phenomenal. Um, our crisis counselor uh, in particular is literally one of the greatest human beings I've ever met. She's helped me personally. She's helped my family. My son is autistic and her sister actually runs um, a, a center that helps students through or that helps young kids through, you know, kind of how to handle their, uh, their everything that they need, how to process, how to handle their, uh, their sensory needs and whatnot. And that, so that, that whole family has been great to me, but the, the crisis counselor in general, I mean, does so much for students, but her workload is at such a massive level right now. And it's, it's increased over through COVID, I'm sure y'all have experienced this too, where the cases of anxiety and depression and self-harm and everything else has really gone up because of a variety of reasons. And it's just, it's one of the, you know, counselors, you know, everyone loves counselors, but at the same time, I feel like we're not doing enough to make sure that counselors have not only the, what they need to do their jobs well, but enough counselors to even handle the workload that they have. So, Hey, when, when we do it, I want the, the Chastain Academy, quote unquote, to be a model for how to actually treat counselors and support them the same way for students and teachers too. Oh, say no more. We're in. Well, already you're speaking our language and, um, you said that your school right now, trauma is the norm. And unfortunately, that is something you're familiar with. So take us back, if you will, and um, start wherever you're comfortable. But we'd love to hear some of your story. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's funny that you say fortunate because I actually do uh, believe that to some extent. And I, you know, I didn't believe it growing up. And, uh, yeah. but once I became a teacher, what happened was, and this is kind of what the the ideas I wanted to detail in my book, Teach Me Teacher, without being kind of self-serving, was the when I didn't realize that a lot of my background was useful until I became a teacher, right? It was one of those things that it was just kind of who I was. It drove me to make a lot of my decisions. It drove me to be very motivated. Um, it also filled me with a lot of anger, and a lot of that anger was used to uh, – quote unquote, become successful in spite of other people, right? It was like, I'm going to leave everyone uh, behind me uh, in terms of doing this because I will outwork this. I will fight my way to get away from all of this was my initial motivators. And then it really wasn't until I was a teacher that I was like, there are so many skills and uh, ways that I developed as a person because of that, that had led me to reach to kids in certain ways. And a lot of this background really stems from uh, my parents. They, you know, I always told people when I was growing up, I didn't know anything was wrong. I was just living my life. Right. And as I got older, friends, parents started not letting them come over to my house. And I was like, you know, I thought it was because like, you know, I had all the cool games because I didn't really have parental supervision. So, you know, I had like Grand Theft Auto as a kid, you know, they would come over and play the violent video games at my house. And I thought that's why their parents, you know, really didn't want them over there. And as I got older, I started, you know, it's like, you, you just start to see that things aren't quite the same. Like when I would stay at a friend's houses, I'd be like, you know, your parents don't really fight that often, you know? And, you know, and I started realizing that going to sleep with fights just happening outside the door really wasn't all that normal, so to speak. And what ended up happening is around 2000, 2001, 
my mom and dad had this huge brawl and this was kind of like the centerpiece this is what the book opens up with but my dad essentially beats my mom to I mean just like throwing around everything that you could imagine I'm standing there I'm experiencing the whole thing I'm the only kid in the house when this is going on and all I do is run outside I kind of scream for help and eventually I go to my friend's house down the road and we call the cops and this was this was like the big moment for our family because we left and when I say we my sister my mom, me, we went and stayed with my grandma uh, for a while, but we didn't stay very long. We ended up coming back and living with my dad. And I experienced this really weird moment to where my dad, you know, we did the therapy thing, right? We went to counseling. My dad started going to church. You know, it was all of this performative stuff that sounded good at the time. And this is where a lot of my distrust comes from institutions in general. Um, I talk about in the book and I talk about just often that a lot of my distrust of, you know, quote unquote, the the religious change in people uh, happened because of these moments of seeing people, you know, advocate for the change that they supposedly had that, you know, they, they are seeing things better and all, they're going to counseling, they're doing all this, you know, it only took a year or so before it started reverting back to where the fight started happening more. And, you know, my mom was falling asleep in her food more. And I really didn't know what was happening until I realized that they had a massive drug problem. They were addicted to prescription pills. My dad convinced me that it was mostly my mom that was these problems, but my dad was the one feeding them to her, so to speak. He was controlling. She couldn't, she didn't have access to money. She didn't have access to her email. She couldn't call people without him knowing. She couldn't go somewhere without her knowing. And for me as a young boy, you know, I, you just don't realize that this is not good, right? Yeah, I mean, you you kind of sense it, but it's not, those connections aren't there. And this is, this is why trauma is so insidious because especially at the younger ages is because you, you just don't have the, the capacity to understand how this is wrong. We, it's built in us to love our parents and to do that. And I idolized my dad. I'm a drummer because of my dad. I'm a musician, right? I'm a performer because of him, right? So many of the qualities that I still benefit from today come from him. So when all of this starts going on, it, it infiltrates your mind in certain ways. You know, I watched just endless times of both my parents just being so, you know, drugged out of their mind to where, you know, I was afraid to get picked up from school because I didn't know if my mom could drive. I mean, just me screaming on the road home, trying to get my mom to drive straight. Uh, you know, there was times where like she turned on the wrong lane. So like we ended up on the highway going the wrong way. Uh, whether she'd pick me up at all because she might forget. I mean, all of those instances just kind of pile up as a kid. And then before you know it, you distrust authority, you distrust people that take care of you. And what I learned as I got to my teenage years was school was like the place where like I was, I was comfortable enough. I had teachers who took care of me in all the way up through elementary up to high school. I ended up reading tons because I figured out that if I read everything else kind of went away and it just, it was like this weird form going from not knowing anything to experiencing all of it, to realizing it and then working extremely hard uh, to get out of it. And I mean, that, that's the story in a nutshell and we can break any of those pieces down, but, um, that that's, I mean, that's a, that's a long way to summarize, uh, the, the trajectory of everything and how it went down. Wow. I, I do have a lot of questions. I mean, it was just a, I could, I could 
I could think of students, couldn't you, Laura? I mean, as he's talking about this, I'm thinking of students that we deal with as school counselors and see their faces and, and wonder how it's going to be on the other side. I mean, you pulled yourself out of this. But, and I guess that's my first question to you is what is it that do you think, because I feel like more than not, they don't break that cycle. And I know how hard it is to break that cycle um, because you have to kind of break some bonds in a way to move past that. So what do you think it was that helped you break away and to kind of move forward instead of staying in this cycle that we see kids stay in? It's a good question. You know, we talk about the, you know, the cycle of poverty, you know, the cycle of trauma and abuse is also real. The cycle of, you know, drug abuse and everything else, um, that, that stuff does stay. And I always say I'm very fortunate because my older, my oldest brother, you know, he managed to get out, but he didn't manage to get out until he was way older. You know, he went through living on the streets and he had a different dad than me. So we shared the same mom, he had a different dad, but his dad also had drug problems. And so he, he faced it in different ways than I did, but it took him until he was a lot older to kind of make it. And I consider myself very fortunate, uh, to have done it at a relatively young age. You know, once I was 18, I once pretty much once I turned 18, you know, I was already with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, but we moved out. I was out. I moved out in the middle of the night and my mom called me the next morning. She goes, where are you? And I was like, Oh yeah, I have an apartment. And it was done. Right. I was out. And I, that moment though, you know, when it comes down to how it broke, you know, there's, I, I don't, this answer probably differs depending on the day that I'm thinking about it. But right now, what I think was the big difference maker, ironically enough, was the fact that I had so many outlets. I had, my, when I was young, there's old, these old music videos that we used to watch as a kid. I used to watch them all the time, but my dad was in a band. He had this huge, you know, if anyone's ever heard the band Rush, you know, that Neil Peart was the drummer and he had, you know, these huge red drum sets. So my dad had one that was his favorite drummer. And all of these videos, you see these kids running around and playing while my dad's playing drums with his guitar. So I'm sitting at the front of his drums with two drumsticks, right? Just like shaking my head and playing and all this other stuff. And so I started playing drums the moment I could. So by the age of five, you know, I was sitting on the drum set trying to make beats and that became my outlet. So literally we had this huge PA system in my garage. And when my parents would be fighting or if it was a, a specific day where the, the house was just dark in terms of what was happening, I would literally just go out to the garage, crank up the PA system and just play for like an hour or two and just get it out of my system. So at an early age, I luckily developed uh, coping mechanisms mm -hmm. for things that weren't destructive, right? Uh, you know, a lot of kids, they, they experiment with, you know, alcohol and drugs because they really don't have other forms of these outlets to go to. And I had, I was lucky enough to have music and to, and music was so pivotal in how I survived a lot of those moments. But later, you know, I mean, a lot of it, so it's, it's the outlets, but it was also, you know, school. I mean, school was the prime mover because my mom, before she got too bad, you know, she was, you know, one of the lunch ladies, right? She would, she would walk around and, you know, help kids with their baked potatoes and, you know, do all of that stuff. Uh, and so I had that relationship, but the, 
teachers knew, like they knew some of the side stories. They knew that my mom wasn't living in an environment where uh, she was safe. You know, she was being controlled and they had those, uh, you know, they, they might not have known the full story, but they knew something was off. And so I always felt like my teachers protected me. I mean, from kindergarten and up, I mean, Miss Hernandez, my kindergarten teacher, I still, I remember all their names. They, you know, she brought us in and made me feel safe. Then my third grade teacher, Miss Coffee, who I still am in contact with, you know, she sang to us and brought us together and made this unified, uh, community with each other. Uh, Miss Urban, who was my fourth grade teacher, she's the one that was around when things were really starting to get bad in my house. She's the one who taught me to basically when I'm at school to put my thoughts and feelings in a cloud and, and that they can stay there as long as I need them to be. And that was a coping mechanism growing up from there. Mr. Hansen, who taught me in fourth grade, but he also taught me in fifth grade, showed me the power of books. He was the first teacher that said, hey, you know, you don't have to read dead dog books. You know, he read the Hobbit to us and I was like, Oh, I can go kill dragons and fight evil. And, and so like I, once I discovered fantasy as a young boy, I was like, yes, this is where I want to be. And, you know, Harry Potter and then everything else kind of stemmed from there. And this, the, the, these big stories of good versus evil were really therapeutic to me all the way up to middle school and then high school, you know, Miss Hammer, who is my mentor for life. I, I think I talk about her on every single podcast I'm on these days, but she was my freshman teacher and my senior teacher. And I'm still friends with her today. She was the reason I got hired my first teaching job. She was my principal at one point. So we've had all of these different, uh, experiences, but she's the one who encouraged me in all of my teenage angst. Imagine me right now with long hair, wearing black shirts and, you know, listening to heavy metal music in my headphones. And I love debating like I, anytime religion, politics, any of the, the aggressive topics came up, I would want to debate it. I didn't want to do work though. Right. You know, I'm high school. My parents aren't really there. You know, I'm not the yeah. best student. I failed math almost every semester, went to a lot of summer school classes, but she encouraged me to use my energy in productive ways, though. She was like, look, this is how Hamlet connects to what you're talking about, right? This is how, you know, the Odysseus connects to what you're trying to do. And it's just all of that wrapped up into this really complex ball is, is how I got out. It's, it's to me, it's so much luck and timing and just the people being in my lives that didn't try to manipulate me necessarily. I never, from all these teachers I talk about, I never felt, felt like they were, they, they were just pitying me and just been like, Oh, we need to take care of him. They, they failed me all the time because I needed to fail at times. Right. They let me make bad decisions, but they never stopped caring for me. They never stopped supporting me. And I, I think those are the big things because I realized that there are good people in the world. They might not be in my house, but they are there. And I think that's, that made me keep striving for those experiences as I, as I got older. That is so powerful. That is just, there are so many things I was taking notes as you were talking. Um, You know, we talk a lot about these students, the phrase you said, uh, the teacher that taught you how to use your energy in productive ways and didn't try to change you or, um, like bottle up or tell you, okay, no, we're not going to debate. But she saw that leadership potential in you. And instead of stifling that, she helped cultivate that, it sounds like, and um, and shaped you into who you are. I knew you would pick that up, Laura, because that's what you always 
pick up with students at your school. So that's interesting that you, that's what you were picking up because Laura really look, she, she advocates for us to really look at what a student is already enjoying doing and kind of join them there and what, the, and introduce other things that, you know, might help that grow. But go ahead. I'm sorry, Jacob. I interrupted you. No, you're good. I, it was just, I mean, y'all are right. We need to, one of my favorite quotes that I remind myself all the time, especially on hard days is a, you know, a, a child showing a behavior is demonstrating a need. And as a teacher, one of the best things that we can do is, is be investigators, right? To be like, okay, so what do you, what is it that you need right now to be successful? Right. And that, that is so much, that's a hard thing to do, especially for new teachers, mm-hmm. um, because it, everything's personal, right? That when that yes, kid, yes. you know, when they're like, this assignment sucks, your class is boring, especially if you're like me and you want a student, you want to be the favorite and you, you know, yeah. you want kids to be excited to come to your class. I mean, those early days when people are like, this is lame, you know, you suck, you know, you, you yeah. chest stain, you're cool, whatever, go away. I don't care about you. You know, that is, it is hard to not uh, take that personally and having, but, but shifting your mindset to, okay, so this behavior is most likely not even, it's not even associated with you, your work or anything else. There is something happening. It doesn't have to be super traumatic. You know, it might be some, someone bumped into them in the hallway in middle school that can set off a kid really fast. But the reason they're set off by that is because of stuff that has happened in their lives or the environment that they lived in. And I think if we, the moment we shift to what is our, how do we support them in whatever behavior they're demonstrating? I think that is this is one of the most powerful things. And this is, I feel like what counselors are so good at is, is really being able to sit with a student and listen and then d- decide what support needs to come from them. And that that's the unique benefit, I think, of, uh, of counselors, because sometimes in teaching, we get so caught up in, okay, they need to do this. We need to get the lesson plan done. If we don't get the lesson plan done, then I'm going to be in trouble and my appraisal's coming up and they're going to look at my data. Um, but it's, it, it's something that has to happen. If learning's going to happen, then we have to take care of the kid first. But we say all the time, you're one of us. Um, there was a couple of things and, and I thought this was so interesting that when kids have all this and they've got to deal with it and they can cope with it in a negative way or a positive way, and you had those positive coping mechanisms. And that even came from your dad with the music and the reading from the teachers. So, you know, it just uh, solidifies the need that we have to continue to really in this day and age, especially coming off this, well, and still continuing the COVID and all the things that that we're saying really, really uh, open kids' world up to other things and teach them these coping mechanisms. But they're never exposed to these things, how do they not know that that would be something that they could grab hold of and use as a coping mechanism? Because we need them now more than ever. That's right. And I, you know, reading is, you know, when I started teaching, reading was the big one that I pushed because reading was kind of the first one that attached itself to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of English teachers lean towards the reading side. You know, we love books and we love words and we're dorks like that. But the, it, it, reading can be this really powerful thing. Um, what I have learned 
is that reading sometimes is a harder one to actually get students engaged in at this level to get them to realize that because you it's one thing to tell them hey this is you know this is stress reliever this will build your compassion and stuff we know the brain science behind why reading is good but to get students to internalize that you have to experience it and experience oh you know i do feel relaxed after reading for a period of time and not just for once a week or whatever but you know daily reading really does loosen me up. It lowers your stress levels. But what I found with my students who um, they they might be dealing with massive things is that empowering them to write, empowering them to, to write about what they want to write about and to put their feelings down on the page and creating a classroom environment where their students so often, you know, we, they, they're only the only time they write is when they're told what to write. Write a response to this question. Write a response to this story. Write an essay on this topic. And yet we never write to write. And if students are never writing to write, they're never going to understand why we write at all. Right? The the original people, when you think all the way back to why cavemen put why we put our hands on the walls, why we wanted to make our mark at all, why toddlers want to scribble and make their place there, it's because they want to say that I was here, I am here. See me, right? And so when we create classrooms that kids are never at, when they never get to make their mark, when they never get to say, hey, see me, I, that's when uh, the students start becoming uh, dejected, so to speak, and jaded from the educational process because they're told every single period and every single class that they are, they're not allowed to make their mark in some way because all they're doing is the work that other people want them to do, right? And I want them to write, so that is my work, but they own it. And so when I started making that shift, their love for my class started increasing, but their ability to communicate, their ability to go, I feel this, right? They used to write one page rants that went through five different topics, but now they can look at one topic and really explore it. And then they walk away going, oh yeah. You know, I mean, how many of us have written something down and you realize what you really believe or what you don't believe when you start writing? And I think that is that experience of allowing kids to make their mark in, in reading, but also in writing is it, those are the coping me mechanisms that I'm trying to instill within my, within my curriculum, because if they can master what they want to say, if they can start controlling their thoughts and not just living in the constant whirlwind that trauma creates and anxiety and depression creates. And if they can start doing something as small as just saying, I feel this, and then explaining why or exploring uh, the possibilities of why. I, that, those are skill sets that are going to go beyond my classroom, go beyond academics, and it's going to fulfill so many things that they need fulfilled, especially if they are experiencing massive trauma at this age. Uh, they, they need these skill sets to be able to process later in life once they realize uh, the truth of the matter. Well, that's some secret sauce right there. I mean, if educators and, and, and counselors can facilitate that and wrap their head around what you're saying, which I believe fully in what you're saying is, is allow more choice, allow more, you know, allow some ownership in the reading and the writing. And, um, you know, Laura, I'm just thinking as school counselors, uh, I'm reading a book to my son now, uh, I am Ivan. And I'm reading this to him and I'm thinking, why would I not bring a group of kids just to hear me read? You know, a group of kids that may just need some more attention. I don't, you know, as I'm, I'm speaking to counselors, a small group just to read a good book or let, you know, let's choose something. Just have a group come, a small group come and let's just write. 
whatever you're feeling or, you know, whatever. There's so many ways mm-hmm. that outside the box, even for school counselors, I hear what you're saying. So powerful for EL teachers, but for school counselors, think the same way as what, grab hold of what he's saying and think outside the box and, and, and not let this, our job just be check marks, check offs, but really, uh, do something different. Think differently about how to give kids these ownerships. And we always say these are the skills, like you were saying, that they're going to need in the future. We don't know what their mm-hmm. future is going to look like. We don't even know what jobs they're going to have in the future. But we know those things that they're going to have to have. Gosh, I'm I'm in love. It's going to be my favorite podcast now of all <laughs> podcasts, Lauren. Not just education, of all. My mind goes to, um, along those same lines, Kim, I'm thinking about like the science teacher who is experiencing some, you know, that butting heads with a student and the power in letting them sit there and write or, um, you know, just kind of express themselves. And as a counselor, I can see the value in that. But how would you how would you pitch that to a teacher that would say, well, I don't have time for that, or that's not my wheelhouse, or this is science, this isn't ELA or whatever? So we're actually doing this on my campus right now, is we're trying to bring writing across the curriculum. I luckily work with a principal who is astounding in her ability to not only be, you know, quote unquote, tough and to get things done, but she is also extremely Um, in the know about what research says about learning and how writing uh, connects to that. And so I'm leading an initiative to get writing to happen across the curriculum. So I've had these conversations and we are currently having these conversations. And my first semi-snarky, semi-real response when people say, well, I don't have time, my response is always, well, you don't have time not to do this. Um, and that that's that's too abrasive. So let me, uh, let me alter that to talk about a few different things because there's there's a multitude of reasons why everyone should be incorporating this writing process, letting kids write freely without judgment in every single content. And the first one is writing is thinking. So often, you know, we, we, what's the, one of the big movements in education was just the, the concept of think time, right? Giving students rather than just asking a question, expecting hands to go up, classrooms have kind of evolved to where teachers create structures and strategies to where we ask a question. Now you're going to have some think time. Now you're going to talk to a partner. Okay. Now raise your hand if you have something to talk about. Right. So we've evolved in that process to allow more thinking and processing because um, classrooms have become so much less about just rote memorization and actually synthesis and critical thinking and everything else. And that takes more time to do. Now imagine if you added a writing element to that. So you hear the question that we're asking. Now you sit there and think for 30 seconds. Okay, now write what you want to say. Now say what you want to say to your partner. Now go back into your writing. Is there anything that you want to add to it or take away from it based on your discussion? Now let's share our responses. So even one step like that, when you're talking pure academics, right? Those That piece of writing can be the difference maker because once they've put their thoughts down on page, 
they become concrete. Having your thoughts, it's it's a complicated process to take. I mean, just think about what's happening in your brain, right? You're 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 pulling in background knowledge, you're using new knowledge, and you're processing it with vocabulary inside your mind. Now you're thinking of grammar rules, structures, these funny little symbols called letters, and you're putting those down onto a page, trying to make pockets of meaning. That way, what you think means what it means on the page, and then you're articulating that to someone else. So there's a lot of processes that are happening in that moment that are extremely complex. We talk about rigor all the time in education, but we always talk about rigor and like the toughness of the question. Rigor is processing your thoughts in a way that they can be articulated for someone else to understand. So on an academic standpoint, this becomes immediately valuable because when kids write, they think at a deeper level because they're having to process at a deeper level, but they also, the, the act of what they're answering becomes more solidified because when you write down something, it usually connects more to your brain uh, than not. There are ex, uh, exceptions to that. Like for me, I'm a horrible note taker. So there's, there's people like me in the world that that could hurt comprehension, but for a vast majority of us, it really does help. But on a different level, Having students, I can't like in science, for instance, in social studies, having students even just write about what this is doing. You just saw a great experiment. What better way to get kids into the level of awe? I mean, science is at its best when you are actually sitting back going, holy crap, this is the world we live in, right? Like when you're learning new information about animals or space or the human body or anything like that, those are so many small ways to get kids to get, step outside of, you know, just the meme world and the TikTok video world and everything else and go, holy crap, like the real world is fascinating. And, and to give them that sense of awe, this is perfect for kids with trauma as well, because if they can find themselves invested in like the human body or the solar system, or, uh, you know, in high school, you know, something more advanced, whatever it is, chemistry, then you can really, that could be a game changer as well. But sometimes students won't make those connections if all they're doing is answering questions, taking quizzes, taking tests, if they don't have time to really process their thinking on these things. In social studies, there's so many tragic and amazing things that have happened in U.S. history alone and giving kids time to reflect on, you know, what, what was like, what are your thoughts on this? What is your just gut reaction and giving them time to put their thoughts down? Not only is it therapeutic for so many ways, it's engaging academically and you're, they're learning how to put their information uh, they're learning how to put their thoughts down into information that is actually useful for the teacher, useful for themselves, and everyone wins as far as I'm concerned when these things are working in sync. I wish you were a little bit more passionate, Jessica, about <laughs> education. If you were just a tad more passionate. I am, I want back in the classroom. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is, this is some good stuff and it makes it makes perfect sense. And it really, I can see school counselors. This is one of the things that Laura, my brain is just, I'm just thinking how, how we don't use enough writing. We don't use enough. I mean, we tell kids to journal, right. but maybe into as a response to whatever we are talking about, if we're talking about empathy or bullying or whatever we're doing, and then let's just write about it. Well, that's, just, that's just great. School counselors, um, Jacob, I don't know what it's like in Texas, but across the nation, there's really a divide in school counselors based on some were educators before they became counselors. But then there are also ways to become a school counselor and become certified without being a 
an ed, a teacher first. So some of these practices, counselors sometimes feel inadequate because, um, you know, I, I don't know, like writing is not in our 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 wheelhouse, I guess you would say. And so we forget to incorporate it. We forget to use it. And so this is, you know, Kim, I know you joke about, uh, you said, I want to go back in the classroom, but I can think of no better opportunity to implement this school-wide than as a school counselor to offer this, to mention this, and really use these ideas to influence um, reaching these students in trauma. And and Kim and I talk a lot about being afraid of not discovering the students that need our help. What a great way to sort of let them express themselves. And then we do see, okay, this kid is struggling. This kid does need some help. This is a great idea. Yeah. Can I share a story with y'all? Of course. Please. So I have, I, I talked about my second book, Rightfully Empowered, coming out here in a few months. But so this book, um, it's, the whole idea is what we're talking about right now, which is empowering students to use their voice and and teaching them through those moments, teaching them through what they want to put down on their page and teaching them how to put their thoughts down in, in creative and powerful ways, uh, not just for themselves, but for also eventually for other people. And I had this one student, I taught the same kids for two years. I, every, I, I talk about them all the time because they're, I I've never had a class like them. And when you spend two years with the same 75 kids, you just, you, you, and also through COVID, you know, we went home and digital and we stayed together and all of them kept writing throughout this whole process. So we, we literally just nonstop wrote uh, together, right? I shared my pieces, they shared theirs. We talked about them and really created this uh, community. And that's what the whole book was born from was this, this existence. But the story I want to tell is, uh, there's this young lady who is one of the most powerful writers today that I know of. But when I got her in sixth grade, um, she was an English language learner. Um, so she, she had some gaps in how she wrote English and how she spoke. And, but she, and she started like a lot of sixth graders do. She started writing just these you know, whimsical pieces. Like I, there's one piece that is in the book, but it's called, um, it, it's something about a, a rat named Cheesemo and they're trying to go steal the cheese, you know, whatever. It's very kid-like, very, very whimsical. But then once I started talking with her a little bit more, she started talking about feeling, you know, anxiety every once in a while. And I started encouraging her, you know, write about it, you know, just put it down there. You don't have to share anything you don't want to share, obviously, but, you know, just put it down there. And over time, we started working she started writing these really powerful pieces. They didn't have, um, they had a lot of structure problems and stuff, just mechanical, but they were talking about really, uh, I mean, really intense stuff uh, in terms of just her anxiety and depression. And then I realized she was in my on-level class. So I asked her if she would go to my honors class because I wanted her to be in a group of people that um, were writing at, because she was writing a lot and it was kind of the, it, it was, it, that's not usually the norm in on-level all the time. And so I was like, let's go to honors. I was like, you're, you're going to be fine. You know, she wasn't passing into the test. She really wasn't quote unquote an honor student on paper, but I got her in there and she started meeting other people who were writing just as much as her. And she started writing a lot and she just kept going and going. And then she started just really connecting to it. But as this is going, her, her emotions in my class, like she likes the class and she talks to me, but 
her, I could see that something was going on, right? And her pieces started getting a little bit darker and darker. And eventually, you know, there was some mild, at first, uh, you know, some mild, uh, you know, suicide ideation, right? And she was putting these thoughts down on paper. And, you know, anytime as a teacher, this is like the biggest terror, you know, everyone's terrified at this moment, because you don't want to overreact and scare them to death to never open up again. But at the same time, you don't want to underreact and then lead to a catastrophic event. And so as a teacher, I'm paying attention and I'm talking to her and she eventually writes, you know, this piece that is in the book. And I, I share it when I talk with people because, um, it's, it's a powerful piece, but it's also, you know, she basically says that, you know, she wants to die. And what happened was, is one of her friends, uh, heard us talking about it. And then one of her friends kind of mentioned that she was worried. And I brought this up to my crisis counselor. And what ended up happening though, is after through all of this event and going through this and her being open about her writing, putting it all down. And we brought up my crisis counselor is we stepped in, we, the crisis counselor thought it was appropriate to go to the next phase. So we got parents involved and it was just this moment to where I remember my assistant principal telling me that when he called the dad, the dad was like, I had no idea. Thank you all for being on top of it. You know, the dad's crying and the, we had this big meeting together and I'm in there and it was this big meeting of us, you know, telling her that, you know, she's, she's okay. And we're here and all of this. And, you know, us just reaffirming like you are loved and, you know, this is whatever. Uh, I was like a big ball of tears throughout this whole process and they were, but what happened was, is we literally were the right people at the right moment in that time. We, we, we saved her from taking, you know, what would be the final steps to this process. And there were, you know, there's other pieces to the story, but the, the, the big takeaway from this is that after that happened, she wrote even more because she was free kind of of this. She realized that she could use this as a way to have her outlet. And she has written more than any other student I have. She still is. She's in eighth grade now and I have her for slam poetry and she still, you know, she'll send me emails like, Hey, Chastain, I'm working on this. Can you check it? And she, in slam poetry, she brings stuff and she's this powerful voice in last year. Uh, to kind of wrap up the story is she was sitting there and she was talking about, she said she was having a conversation with her parents about what she wanted to be when she was older. And she goes, she goes, I just told them I'm going to be a poet. That's what I do. I write poems and I write poems about this and I write poems about that. And I was thinking of this young girl who started barely, you know, just, you know, she was, she knew English, but she was still struggling with it to a girl who is now not only using her writing, she's going to be published in a book. She has a story that so many kids can relate to. And now she's choosing to use her voice to not only for herself, but to actually put it out there for other people. And I'm like, this is the power of creating safe places for students. It is the power of allowing them to be who they are and not just focus on answering the correct questions. I have that stuff too. I'm not ignoring the teacher parts of this, but think about the academic growth that she has had by writing all the time. She has published, she has written more pieces than probably most people have written in their entire lives. And she's not the only one. She's the highlight story currently, but there are so many people out there dying. Kids want their voices to be heard. They don't, you, 
we know this. We have young kids who are like, you know, when will I be able to read? When will I be able to write? They love these things until school tells them that they're only used to serve other people. If we don't let these skills serve them, the kids are, they're going, that's when that, that, that jadedness comes from. This is when kids check out. That's when kids are like, I don't need school anymore because school is just for you. It's not for me. And I, I, my whole goal is to flip that because it literally changes lives and it saves lives all, all, often. Hmm. So powerful, so powerful. And I, I so agree with everything that you were saying and I, you just voice it so well. And it really does apply to all educators in all areas and the way we do things, we need to look at it more closely. And those moments don't happen without someone who has facilitated a safe environment and a place where these kids feel free to share. And Kim and I have seen so often that these kids want, they want you to know that this is what they're struggling with. And you were the person that she felt the most comfortable with to share this. And I mean, just one of many students that you've rescued, I know. Well, and it's, it's, it's scary at times because the, you know, I had a teacher who I was working with and she was like, you know, I just get so, she was like, I feel so much anxiety when students start writing about this stuff. And, you know, there's certain teachers who take on the whole role of, you know, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a therapist. And um, I get that because we're not. And, we, you know, most of us don't have the skill set to do that. So, you know, there's a reason why, you know, counselors and therapists go through what they go through to get their those positions. And I think that's very valid. But one thing I I try to reframe for people who might feel that way is yes, of course, I'm, we're not telling you to be therapists and be counselors and whatnot, but being a good person, does it require specialization? You don't being creating safe places for kids to be kids doesn't take special, uh, accreditation. It doesn't take any of that. You, everyone can do that. And our, our, our places where kids spend the most time, you know, schools and classrooms, if we can create that, then you don't need to be a therapist right now because you're you're already doing what they need. And once they're safe and comfortable, then they, you know, if they are having extreme issues, you will know because they're going to say something. And if they if they're not, you know, hopefully they aren't at that level to where something they're a danger to themselves or other people. And, you know, just creating these great places for them just to be happy. Imagine, I mean, if, like I always thought like in middle school, right? My kids go through eight different periods a day. I'm there with me for about 80 minutes or so for 80 minutes. If I can just make their lives better in some small way, then I consider that I, I've done at least part of my job. And that doesn't take me to be a counselor or a therapist. All it took me was to, you know, play some music that they like, be really nice, set up, uh, uh, set up uh, structures to where we can talk often one-on-one and reading and writing and the, it that kind of take care of themselves. And you know what, when kids are happier and safer, they learn a whole lot more too. So true. Thank you, Jacob. I tell you what, you're a font of, of knowledge and, Goodness gracious, making us think different, educators think different, differently. So what, you've got a book coming out. You've got another book coming out. You've got a book. You've got one coming out. Do you do speaking? What else? What else? And what's down the road? What do you see for, for yourself in the future? The school opening up and do you do speaking yeah. or workshops or? Yeah, I've, uh, you know, what's funny is the teach when Teach Me Teacher first came out, the book, I, you know, 
there was some speaking stuff scheduled and I had a, a bunch of things going down and then COVID kind of hit. Uh, and so all of that kind of got canceled. And then the, the hotness of teach me teacher, I mean, it's still, it's still out there, but you know, people want the new thing. And so that kind of skipped over. I've done some speaking for some places and I love to speak and uh, do, you know, uh, keynotes. I love doing workshops and trainings and whatnot. Uh, my goal for when Rightfully Empowered comes out is to be able to take that and go work with teachers on um, how to create these empowering writing workshops and, and in a way that is connected to actual content, um, but also freeing enough that students come to love writing and realize that there's so much potential there. So those things are uh, down the line. I love working with people when, when they do it. I did a keynote not too long ago with uh, Jen Jones, who's big on Instagram and talked to a bunch of her people. So we've done that. COVID's made everything really tricky. You know, Texas down here, everything's kind of normal, right? <laughs> Quote unquote normal, like it still exists. And, uh, but, you know, Texas, like we, you know, we, we're a different place down here. So everything feels normal here, but the rest of the United States, you know, there's still, there's still all kinds of wild things in terms of restrictions where people can speak and, uh, and whatnot. So uh, we'll see what happens. I love doing that if people want to reach out, but in terms of down the road, you know, the school is something that I'm wanting to do. I'm probably the, the next, next phase is jumping into administration some point in the district. I'm in the same district that I went to school in, kindergarten through 12th grade. And so I, I'm probably not going to leave the district to be admin. So when, when the door opens, I'll take that step and then eventually build a, a revolutionary school down here in Texas. And we'll see what that's like. But um, that, that's the big goal. We'll see. We'll see if, the, if things pan out. But I just love doing what I do. I love talking to people like you and sharing the voices of other educators on Teach Me Teacher. And I just, you know, I, I wouldn't do all of this if I wasn't excited about it. I don't really feel like it's work. I think it's just, I think what we need in education are more people sharing the good stories, the, the hard stories and everything else, because so many people think they understand the world of education. And they really don't. And I feel like the more of us that share the good news about the power of it, uh, the better we're all going to be. So I'm hoping I can play just a small part in that. Fantastic. 